The most ghoulish of greetings to each and every one of you. Those tunes that you just heard are, of course, courtesy of my dear friend, Bobby Mackey, and I'm your host, Tessa Morrow. Thank you so much for stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers podcast part of your day. So not long ago, just a few weeks, really, you heard an episode titled My Friend the Hero. My dear family friend who passed away earlier this year was featured in it. Blag spoke about a couple of bizarre happenings at the Fire Hose Company 3 house, and I'd like to talk a little bit about a history there and little bits and pieces about my investigation that was conducted about a few years back, maybe three or four years ago. I first heard of this firehouse from my Aunt MJ. She wanted to investigate it with me, and after a couple of years, we finally got to do it. It's now a museum with a ton of fire antiques and apparatus. And when we went there, besides investigating this location, we just absolutely learned a ton. You know, I have cousins who are firefighters and and good friends. I've always respected, like police officers, I always respect what they do. They're heroes. And so it was really neat to learn more about what they go through. The historic firehouse was designed by a local architect named John Bishop. Now, sadly, Bishop was killed in the Eden train wreck. This took place just eight miles north of Pueblo, Colorado. The engineer had received a thunderstorm caution, which resulted in him slowing down to between, I would say, 10 to 15 miles an hour. He was intently on the lookout for washways and flash floods and what have you. Well... Everything was going okay, you know, they're getting there slowly but surely. But as the train passed the Dry Creek Arroyo Bridge, suddenly a large wave came out of nowhere, tossing parts of the train and yanking part of it back towards the river. The Pullman's porter quickly pulled the emergency air brakes, saving some of those lives of the passengers. That wreck was considered one of the worst railroad disasters of the time. When it comes to fatalities, it's definitely still one of the worst. Out of the 100 people that were in the engine, the chair cars, and the smoking section, only three passengers and one fireman would escape with their lives. It took the first rescue train four long, agonizing hours to get to the wreckage. And as the floodwaters receded, the rescuers, oh, just bless their hearts. I don't know how they were doing it, but they were finding bodies as far as 22 miles away from the wreck site. It was no easy thing. They were dealing with floods and also quicksand. It was a horrible event, something that will always be part of Colorado's dark history. Architect, for the Fire Hose Company 3, John Bishop, and his sister, 
They were among the people to die that horrendous fateful day. And believe it or not, it only took 24 hours to rebuild the bridge and train traffic resumed shortly afterwards. I wish construction was always that quick. My dad and aunt's childhood friend is a fire inspector, a total sweetheart, who operates the firehouse, now turned a museum. And it's one hell of a place with an impressive amount of firefighter antiques and history, and it's definitely worth checking out if you're in the area. This firehouse is believed to be haunted. Stories going back since the 1930s. They have a window upstairs that has a handprint that just appeared one day and has not been able to be permanently removed. They cleaned it several times, and I think they even replaced the window, but this mysterious handprint keeps coming back in the same exact spot. I myself have seen this ghostly handprint, and it's awesome to see in person and eerie. I mean, it is kind of like a must-see kind of thing. You know, there's some things that you can describe and talk about, but... For some people like myself, it's like, no, I need to see it. I need to be there. I want to see that with my own eyes, you know? And if you recall, when my friend Dave Blagg was on, they've had a couple incidents that he shared about where one of their old fire trucks drove on their own, including an old Seagraves truck. Now, I must say, when I first walked into this old firehouse term museum, I was shocked and impressed at how many antiques were in there. And instantly, I just closed my eyes trying to envision the firefighters long ago using these objects, some just too strange to picture. Across the street is a bar. Next door is a mortuary. In this investigation was my Aunt MJ, Fire Inspector Gary, and myself. Upon arriving, I'm setting up my equipment when suddenly my aunt notices that her phone just died. I mean, big deal, right? Everyone's phones die now and then. It's a pain in the butt. It's inconvenient, but you just throw it on the charger and you go on with your day in life, right? Well, the thing is, is that she had it charged to full battery before arriving so she could use it for pictures. It was full when she walked in the firehouse, and then suddenly, a minute or two later, it beeped low battery warning and croaked on her. Gary, he looks at his phone, and it too dies. I think it was like we were trying to see what time it was when we were starting the investigation slash tour, history tour thing. And so she looked at her phone, boom, and then Gary, he looks at his phone, and it too dies. His phone was also at 100%. The phone's life source is quickly dying, being drained rapidly from its energy sources. Well, I don't like this one bit. I get kind of paranoid. And of course, I brought extra batteries for equipment, as does any paranormal investigator. But an extra phone? Mm. So anxiously and somewhat panicky, I look down at my phone, click the button to look at the home screen. It comes to life, the screen illuminating my face. Still at 100%, baby. Whew, that would have sucked. (laughs) But we already started off this investigation with two people's fully charged phones just suddenly dying. Who or what is draining the energy? We wanted to learn about the firehouse. As I have passed this old building countless of times throughout the years and always wanted to know the history as I do with most old buildings. So Gary was more than happy to share with us some of the history. 
So as we walk around, he talks, we listen, and I record. I like to record not only so I can re-listen to the history part, but doing this in the past, recording tours and whatnot, I've gotten phenomenal EVPs and unexplained sounds. The advantage to this investigation was it was just the three of us. Usually there's a large crowd and you'd be surprised how many times there's usually two chatty Cathy's or chatting Tim's whispering during the tour. If you're recording and listening afterwards, that chatty Kathy or whispering Tim can sound like EVPs. So then, of course, I debunk it as I'm seeing it happen, whispering, you know, so-and-so whisper. So, you know, when there's only three of us, there's a lot less debunking and it's a lot more easy and convenient. What I noticed a lot when listening afterwards was that a man was with us and I believe it to be a spirit of a firefighter. Gary would be talking and suddenly another man's voice would make an appearance on the recorder agreeing with Gary. You'll see what I'm talking about once I talk a little bit about the evidence we collected. Gary starts with sharing with us that the Firehose Company 3 building is the second oldest building in town that the city owns. It was built by the Stoyers next door, that's the mortuary. It was given to the city And it is then that, unbeknownst to us, the spirit makes his first appearance. He whispers the CVP yes, saying yes. As we walk around, Gary is talking. So all I have on for now is the recorder, as not to distract or disrupt Gary with something loud, such as the spirit box or the ovulus or what have you. So the oldest building that the city owns is the Goodnight Barn. The firehouse is one of two still standing that the horses actually ran out of. They kept two horses and at sometimes goats at this firehouse back in the day. Can only imagine how it smelled. At this point, as Gary is talking about the horses, unexplained sounds are caught on my recorder. And I've heard this sound several times before, and I can only describe it as invisible hands grasping at my recorder. The sounds are very close and somewhat clumsy. Gary tells us that the Station 4 is the new one on Lake Avenue, and as he pauses, the spirit whispers this EVP, what sounds like he's saying, hand me the pads. Hand me the pads. Besides smaller antiques, is parked two old antique cars. I point at one and ask him what the history is, and Gary answers, This here, this is a 1924 Johnny Cash car. A bunch of car parts put together. The guy who used to run the museum was an antique car buff, and he built this himself. Then he was going to take it to Denver and sell it, and I got him to donate it to us. Want to hear the scary part? Hmm, scary part. Do I want to hear it? Does Homer Simpson like beer and donuts? Yes! Is a rainbow colorful? Yes! (laughs) Does a cat like tuna? Yes! Does Dracula like blood? Yes! Do I want to hear the scary part? Yes! A thousand times yes! Both my aunt and I, well, we look excitedly at one another, and both shriek yes at the same time, like little twins. Gary laughs and he says, Okay, we got two vehicles in this building start up and take off driving by themselves. 
One was a 1960 Seagrave pupper that we have down at our other building. It was an active truck. This was an active station. Sometime in 1977, the guys were upstairs sleeping. There were four of them. Around 2 to 2.30 in the morning, they hear a noise and one of them goes down the stairs. He then points at an old antique fire truck that sits proudly before us and continues on. This truck right here started up by itself and went through the doors. And as Gary pauses, an EVP of a man snickering is caught on the recorder sounding like, like, (laughs) and I know Blag shared in the episode a few weeks earlier about the trucks moving, but it's neat when you hear two different eyewitnesses talking about it. You know, somebody might miss something or it's just neat hearing this encounter because it was amazing. You know, like nobody was behind this fire truck and yet it was being operated and miraculously nobody got hurt. And so obviously we're not hearing the EVPs. We're not hearing the laughing or the words being spoken. So Gary continues on. It stopped at the curb, a policeman walking the beat because back then in 1977, they used to walk the neighborhood. He came up to the truck and started writing a report. When suddenly, the truck started up again and went right across the street. The 1960 Seagrave, that was a documented story. This was an active station from 1895 to 1979. March of 1979 was the last run out of here. So it's at this point that unexplained panting noises are captured on the recorder, followed by an EVP of the spirit saying, March. March. Gary shares some more haunted history with us. This time, it's a little more recent. In 2005, four of us came here on a Sunday morning. We were going to have an awards dinner at the firefighter police train station. So we were going to bring a lot of stuff from here to put up on display. So we came up here, the four of us. We start up this car. We drove it around and brought it to the back parking lot and parked it facing Evans Street. We came back around and backed a trailer in here. No sooner I was standing right over here for some reason, there was a guy on the east side of the trailer on the sidewalk. So at this point, Gary pauses and a sound is recorded. It sounds like a child. Now, if I heard this with my own ears, I would have debunked it, the sound, like the EVPs. The little child goes unheard by all of us. So Gary goes on. And the guy was just getting out of the truck when we hear this really loud noise. Bang! We look out and there's pallets of fire extinguishers and headlights rolling down the streets. This car ran into the tongue of the trailer. We were worried, thinking, okay, did a little kid get in there and drive around? We couldn't find a driver. There was nobody there. Nobody. We're standing there baffled. A young couple from the apartment complex nearby comes up to us, tells us that they saw it drive through the parking lot all by itself. My recorder captures at this point what seems to be the same spirit of a man whispering, ride up. Gary goes on. Here's where it gets interesting. It went in between the tombstones that are on display out there at the corner of the mortuary. 
How we know that is that it left skin marks on the sidewalk. It went up Evans Street, came up the driveway, took a 90 degree turn, came down Broadway before it got to the station. Then it turned 45 degrees into the trailer. The lady across the street, she's a bartender at the bar and she saw it happen. What she thought happened, you know, is when you park a vehicle on the trailer, if you don't tie it down and the trailer moves, but the vehicle stays. We had three witnesses that saw this happen. And when he says three witnesses, he means three witnesses besides the firefighters. Okay, so there was more witnesses, but people that weren't connected to the firehouse witnessed this insanely intense situation. This is a documented case. This is what's very interesting. And it's important to me. It had eyewitnesses. It made the news. It was in the newspapers. It's not legend has it the car moved by itself. No, this thing indeed not only moved by itself, but drove around a very busy part of town, operating back to its fire hose home. They nicknamed this car Chief's Car. This ghostly joyride cost the firehouse 30,000 big ones. That's a couple of bucks shy of 40,000 bucks today. And considering no one was at fault during this incident, it was a hard blow. $30,000 down the drain. Regarding this incident, Gary admits that they were all dumbfounded. They were in such shock that nobody thought to even take pictures. How can they explain this incident? Either the car grew a brain and decided to drive by itself, or a ghost wanted to take a little joy ride. Both sounded utterly ludicrous and ridiculous. What the hell happened that day? We walk over to a display that has several different antique looking fire extinguishers and Gary picks one up. This is mine. This was the type that was on Titanic. When you watch the movie and she's in the hallway looking for an axe and the water is up to her waist, the way it works, this is the handle you use to carry it. You turn it upside down again and the chemicals are going to mix. An EVP of the man is caught saying the handle. Immediately after this, Gary says, this here is the handle. Something on the wall catches my aunt's attention and she asks Gary what it is. And he looks over and replies and again, describing this and explaining it doesn't give it justice. It was this like really cool thing attached to the wall, this big boxy thing with different things coming out of it. And he says, that's the communication system they had back when all the wires and telephone wires you see in all the old pictures, that was the great minister computer. The story behind that is in the 1921 flood, this was downtown. That was taken downstream some 15 miles. We went back, and cleaned it up. See, when you pull the station, you pull this box right here. It intersects. There's a list from 1912. All special intersections, pull box number five. It's going to send a message back to this thing here. Each station has a ticker tape. The way it worked was the bell at the station would ring in sessions of three. Five rings, pause. Five rings, pause. Five rings. So when the guys heard it, they knew it was number five. It would also punch five holes, pause, five holes, space, five holes. So the firefighters could hear it and see it and knew where they had to go. 
Impressed, my aunt says that idea is brilliant, and the ghostly visitor agrees, whispering, yeah. This museum firehouse is filled to the brim with impressive things, and again, I try to picture firefighters decades earlier using these things. We walk over to a case, and Gary points at an item, opens the case so we can get a better look. He points at something and says, that there is a fire grenade. Or a fire bomb. It's full of carbon tetrachloride. You throw it in a fire, it breaks when the liquid heats up to 150 to 155 degrees. It turns into a gas which dissipates oxygen. That's what they used in World War II to kill people. When it heats up, it changes as a chemical reaction. My aunt, while she's admiring their presentation trumpet, and in awe, she says, wow, a presentation trumpet. Our ghostly friend gives us this EVP saying, trumpet, trumpet. Gary walks over to a case and grabs something, handing me a horn-like item and says, bugles are used to designate rank. The story is after they got through all the structures when the fire was out, they would plug this in with a piece of wood, turn it over, fill it up with beer or ale, and would drink it. If they got into a fight, they would use it to hit each other over the head. One bugle on the collar would make you a lieutenant. Two, side by side, is a captain. Three, is assistant chief. Four, is a deputy chief and the head honcho, the big boss, the numero uno. Well, they have five badges. One cute story he shared with us is when a group of firefighters were gathering together for a picture and a little paper boy decided to photobomb the heroic bunch. That photobombing paper boy would later become a firefighter himself. And looking at the picture, it's hard not to laugh. The little boy has the biggest smile plastered on his face. It was so precious. And it's cool that he actually became a firefighter afterwards. As we are looking at the picture, my recorder captures static. And again, I don't have anything else on. And shortly after, a voice is caught saying, help me. That's always sad when you get an EVP like that, you know? So we start heading towards the stairs to head on up when Gary stops us and tells us an interesting story. About two years ago, my daughter calls me up. The boys, my two grandchildren, were five and seven at the time and wanted to go to the station and see the ghosts. I had something else I had to do, so I gave my daughter the keys and they came here around five in the evening. Well, they had Happy Meals and were going to go upstairs and eat in the kitchen, which is kind of a cool thing to do up there. She calls me and excitedly says, Pops, we saw a shadow. And I ask her, what do you mean you saw a shadow? Which she responds, the boy saw it too, Papa, the shadow. Well, I did some investigating and it turns out that they did in fact see a shadow, but it was actually a silhouette. Gary directs us where to stand and he runs upstairs to hit the light switch. He tells us to look in an area between two different helmets. He turns the light on and in unison, my aunt and I gasp. <gasps> the silhouette truly looks like a man sitting right there on the stairs. It even looks like he has a firefighting helmet on. It looks like a firefighter just hanging out at the firehouse. A natural thing, wouldn't you think? That, again, just describing it doesn't give it justice. You must see it with those own eyeballs of yours. 
Gary shares with us that, of course, it's nothing paranormal. It's just the paint peeling away from the wall. But they thought that it was such a cool, beautiful piece of art that they saved it. They did something to make sure that it would stay there and not peel anymore. So that silhouette of a firefighter is always there looking over the museum. And I think it's a very appropriate piece of art for a firehouse. (laughs) As we are standing there admiring the firefighter on the stairs, unexplained pops are captured on the recorder. It is then that we go upstairs and he stops us to look at the famous handprint on the window. He tells us that no matter how many times it's been cleaned or scrubbed, that it always comes back. There's a plaque above the window that reads, To the left is the window with the mysterious handprint on it. Stories came down from the 1930s or 1940s of a handprint on the glass of the window. The firemen would wash the window within hours. The handprint would appear when no one was looking. At first, the firemen thought it was a prank, but after several months of this happening, with the handprint always being in the exact same place, no matter who was working, the firemen thought it was a defect in the glass. Within a day, the handprint would reappear. As we're looking at the mysterious phantom print, the millimeter spikes to 2.5 and screams an alert sound at us. As I look at my phone to take a picture of the window, the face recognition, a yellow box, forms around the handprint. Gary lets us know that the upstairs has proven to be the most active when it comes to the paranormal activity in the firehouse. When we get to the kitchen, my EMF meter, the Mel, goes off uncontrollably. We are led to an area where they have the line of duty photos framed up on the wall. Many of these men were so young and they all had one thing in common. They were heroes doing their job, helping people, saving people, and died while doing so. Gary points to one saying that the man was their first chief and that he was killed in a buggy accident in town by Dutch Clark Stadium. He points at a section of the wall upstairs and there's more pictures of firefighters. We notice that some have mustaches while others are clean shaven. He gives us an interesting fact and it's kind of funny. The breathing apparatus that they had was one that was not mustache friendly. So the men that had beards and mustaches would throw water on it, shove it in their mouth, put the uh, breathing apparatus on and fight the fires. When the fire was out, guess what? They would take that mustache or beard out, reshape it, light their cigarette, and go on with their merry day. (laughs) What a hairy situation, am I right? Kudos to whoever in the hell could actually do that personally. That would drive me crazy. My beard will just stay right where it is. I'm just kidding. I don't got a beard. Come on. Gary points out a corner to us that is very active. As if on cue, my recorder captures a voice saying, right now. It sounded like it came from a walkie-talkie or something. He told us about a paranormal team from Boulder that came to stay here and investigate overnight. And one of the girls woke up to the sound of a man breathing right next to her. He shares with us that another paranormal group, one of the people was a gal from Phoenix who was dating a police officer from here. And she had a brand new digital camera and she's walking around, making her rounds, you know, going upstairs, taking pictures and all around the firehouse. 
She took several pictures. Well, she heads to her computer to download the pictures. While the downstairs pictures were there, all the ones that she had taken upstairs, none of them came out. And many teams have gone up there with new batteries and equipment and suddenly everything just dies. Thankfully, that day my equipment behaved, my pictures came out, and the only things to die were Gary and MJ's phones. My mail meter went off a lot up there, but that's it. We were there for a few hours, and mind you, Gary had worked all day at that point, and, you know, I think Olympics were actually going on at that time, and he wanted to partake in watching the rest of that. And we got some good evidence, you know, we, we got some spikes here and there. We did spirit box sessions where a man came through giving us a first name, a last name, and a nickname. And um, the nickname was Peanuts. And I thought that was really interesting. Had caught whispers and just a bunch of different other things as well. EVPs, as you know. And so I think with this, it's one of those things where if you want to go, it's a private tour. It's one of those things where you call ahead of time, make plans, you go. And again, this is for the Fire Hose Company 3 in Pueblo, Colorado, kind of like in Midtown area. And so, yeah, you should definitely check it out. It's a neat place to go to. Talk to Gary, see if you can get in. And it's one of those things where donations are appreciated. And that's basically you paying for the tour or investigation or whatever is, you know, you, you pay some dough for the donation. And it's really worth it. Money goes right back into the building as it is one of the oldest in town there. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Yes! Listen to the others, you guys. They are equally phenomenal. Haven't heard every single one yet? Turn that cry into a laugh. As you can binge listen right this moment. Just head on over to any of the platforms that podcast offers, such as Overcast, Podcast Republic, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts. Oh, the list goes on. But wherever you may roam to listen to your other phenomenal podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcasts lurking in the background. This week's special city shoutouts go to... Bentleyville, Pennsylvania. Nashville, Tennessee. St. Louis, Missouri. Kendallville, Indiana, and Chadsford, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for listening. Please come back and listen to next week's newest episode, released, of course, on Monday. See you next week.